Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, we talk carbon neutrality with the sustainability stalwart that is flooring manufacturer Interface. A big thing for us is a carbon neutral. It's very much a stepping stone or a milestone. It's certainly not our destination, but it's where we think we should be as a responsible company today. The Plant-Based Food Alliance UK share their call to action for businesses and government this January. We recognise people aren't just going to stop eating meat and animal products overnight, but it does have quite a big impact, the food we eat, and plant-based has been set out by some major institutions as being a way of tackling that environmental impact. And we pay a visit to a pop-up fashion hub to discuss what it will take to transition to a circular economy for the fashion industry. The industry needs to give consumers an alternative model. Given that we're in a cost of living crisis, the whole kind of resale and second-hand or multiple users of apparel products needs to become a part of our culture. Plus, we'll be reflecting on Davos, revealing our sustainable New Year's resolutions and delivering up our very own net zero jargon buster to set you up for the year ahead. All of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello, welcome along once again to Sustainability Uncovered. Uh, you're listening here to ED's content director, Luke Nichols. Uh, Happy New Year, if we're still saying that. Happy Chinese New Year. Um, I suppose feels more timely if we have any listeners that far afield. Um, so we're back once again in, in ED's podcast studio, a freezing podcast studio. We forgot to turn the heating on before coming in this morning, so we're all wearing our coats hats, scarves, ready to bring you some of the most inspiring and exciting sustainability and climate action stories from across the globe. And as it's almost Oscars season, um, I'm joined once again by the Scorsese and, and De Niro of sustainable business that are Edie's content editor Matt Mace and senior reporter Sarah George. Matt, uh, hello. Uh, you look like a, a man on a mission this morning, this week even. Yeah, well, Thank you for obviously not referring to me as the Nicolas Cage of the sustainable world. I would have maybe, maybe taken slight offence to that. But um, yeah, man on a mission is, is probably the right term. It's been um, just a crazy month, really, and we're not even done. Like, January is usually a time to get your feet back under the table. We obviously close over Christmas, the office closes, so we get a bit of time off. And, and January is just a way to yeah get your ear a bit closer to the ground, finger on the pulse, and figure out what's happening in the sustainability world. But so much has already happened with the net zero review. Um, Sarah's going to be touching on what's been happening in, in Davos as well. Um, and our engagement week, which is all about um, sustainability comms, uh, reporting, disclosure. And there's been lots of conversation already about greenwash, which I think will be the probably the, the dominating topic of certainly the first half of the year uh, for sustainability and, and lots of conversations coming up now about different types, more sophisticated types. There's a report by Planet Tracker called it, they mentioned this greenwash hydra, this kind of many-headed beast. There's different types of greenwash from the, the, the greenwash that we all know, the kind of slightly misleading stuff to now 
businesses moving in the complete other direction, green hushing, being quiet about sustainability through fear that they will greenwash or perhaps just trying to get a bit more competitive in the market without showing their hand. So it's um, been great to write about, actually, to mm. kind of strike the balance of what responsible businesses should be doing uh, along that. And you'll, you'll see that if you if you check out the ED website and, and tune into the webinars as well. So, yeah, yes. busy. Yeah, yeah, very busy. Um, and as you say, you can search ED Engagement Week. You'll see a, a great list of content that Matt and Sarah have been producing there, along with the, the online event for the week, which I think I can say now has been our most popular ever online event in terms of registrants. Um, so yeah, the year of sustainability communications, hopefully, and hopefully not the year of green wash or green hush. Um, anyway, Sarah, speaking of hush, uh, hello, sorry to keep you so quiet over there uh, in your hat and coat and scarf. Um, have you had a good start to the year? I have, um, although it's been diminished slightly by the fact that Matt's stolen all the things I wanted to discuss um, about the start of the year. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, when you're a sustainability journalist, this is not so much a case of getting feet back under the desk, but being shoved onto a treadmill hmm. uh, and then someone quite forcibly putting the, uh, the incline up quite steeply. Um, we had an earlier than expected net zero strategy. Um, we had Davos, which is always a highlight in the calendar, although we can talk about how this year, amid what's been called polycrisis, it was very different, um, in my opinion. Um, and then now we've chosen to focus on comms. And I'd agree with Matt in that greenwashing is definitely something that people are talking about as we go into this um, new year. And tied to that, I'd say I'm seeing a lot about competition. Um, coming into this new year at Davos, the EU said that it's going to be launching its own subsidy package to counteract the US's um, Inflation Reduction Act, which is accused of being, you know, anti-competitive, might stifle their own market for electric cars and other technologies. Um, we've also just have a start of the year speech from the UK's Competition and Markets Authority with a strong focus on net zero and how we can make sure that businesses can collaborate when they want to on net zero. Um, and obviously the CMA is also the architect of the Green Claims Code, so it's all connected. But um, those are my big two issues for the first half of the year, I'd say. Yeah, it's been a busy first couple of weeks of the year, isn't it? This month, obviously, as you say, saw the return of the World Economic Forum in Davos. Fair to say the tone of, uh, throughout that week was pretty sombre, as one of you wrote, um, with a lot of the talks being focused on the, the poly crises, as it's being dubbed now. Um, mm -hmm. The climate crisis did get a lot of focus, but I think ultimately that was a bit marred by the, the stories of the, the private jet use, once again, of many attendees and the continued support of the fossil fuel industry and, and broken promises in other areas of, of the green economy, which has been the same narrative really for the past many years of, of Davos. Um, now, uh, speaking of broken promises, Matt and Sarah, uh, as it's January, I thought I'd ask you about your New Year's resolutions. Uh, this was triggered uh, yesterday because I don't know if you guys saw, we received a, a quite a random press release for us about uh, New Year's resolutions, which said that 43% uh, of people give up on their new goals by February uh, and only 9% of people actually uh, end up successfully keeping their New Year's resolutions. Uh, which tees me up nicely, I think, to ask you guys if you've got one yourself, whether you think you're going to be part of the 43% or the, or the 9%, Matt? Well, I think in general, like, New Year's resolution is just a bit wet. I think just wait until a new year to decide that you're going to do X, Y, or Z, I think is a little bit, um, yeah, it shows a lack of discipline, I think. Um, if, if it works, then, 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 then great. But like you said, it clearly doesn't based on those stats you just read out. I'd, Saying that I do, it's not like a news resolution, but it's just something I'm actively trying to do more of. And I, I started probably before Christmas, and that is, and there's a there's a there's a sustainability link there, and it's cut down on on meat and in particular dairy. Um, 
So I've got my chai tea here. So all teas are now kind of green tea. This is a Papa Herbs one, so free, free shout out to them. They were on the podcast quite recently, I think, mm-hmm. anyway, so it's, it's fine. Um, uh, so no, no, no milk in my teas. Uh, cutting down on coffee as well, but the coffees I do have will be oat uh, or, or just a different type of, of milk than, than dairy. And I mean, we, we've spoken about greenwash already, and I realise this target is a bit greenwashy because I don't have a, I don't have like a specific target for like how many meat-free meals I'll eat a week. It's not like kind of X number of meals a week, um, but it is something that I'm just actively looking uh, to cut back on, mainly because also I always have I always have like vegetables left over in the fridge. Mm. So I don't want to cause food waste either. So it's just whipping up something with, with them. I'm not I'm not a great chef. So the things they look atrocious, but they, they taste okay. Mm. Um, so though, yeah, it's just it's just kind of it's kind of very much health conscious but also there's a sustainability link there as well but like i said you know i couldn't i couldn't submit that if there was an sbti for new Year's resolutions it wouldn't be verified but yeah no well it's baby steps into the into the world of going meat free uh, proud to say on my side i was actually part of that the nine percent last year because it was almost exactly a year ago to the day that i, I made a resolution to, to go vegan or plant-based i guess i should say uh, which i did and I, I haven't looked back since um yeah, I was expecting a sort of round of applause. Uh, well, There's a very long-winded way to blow your own horn there. <laughs> Feign interest in our, in our resolutions just so you can champion your own. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm proud of Luke. He's sat here. Listeners won't be able to see this. He's got this big box of, I think, is it lentil chips? Lentil yeah. crisps? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Love, love Look excellent. Chips. Thought he was going to maybe use them as some sort of maraca for some <laughs> backing instrument. But no, it's just a plant-based snack. Yeah, uh, well, stay tuned for the, for the plant-based chat uh, about commitments we've got later on in the show um this year i think my resolution's a bit of a boring one but i think it's to walk more um, because i think during covid and, and the lockdowns i got into a, a good habit um, of walking every day we got into a good habit matt we went out for a few walks yep uh, felt better for it but then uh, last year that went out the window a bit so yeah trying to get my ten thousand steps in every day but joys of having a dog is ten thousand steps becomes a Quite literally a walk in the park mm. <laughs> like um i don't remember the last time i didn't hit ten thousand steps with a with kind of two dog walks and then on some days a run as well i can mm. it can get to 20k if i'm if i'm feeling adventurous you need to get your cats on that luke <laughs> yeah. so i have one that is numerical i'm definitely probably more of a type a personality than matt um every year year to year um i track how many books i read last year it was 15 so i'm targeting 20 this year which i think is reasonable Um, And I've also made a resolution to read some books that I have on my bookshelf already and to make time for some sustainability titles, which is hard to do when you spend eight hours of your day thinking about sustainability. Um, I'm I'm that person that you'll see on the beach holiday with a sustainability um, book having an existential crisis because I didn't want to read it in the evenings. Um, So one of my first titles that I want to read is A Bigger Picture by Vanessa Nakate. She is a youth climate activist. Um, and then also I have a copy of Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall-Kamara. Um, and this is about indigenous knowledge and how that can be used to protect and conserve and restore nature. Um, and also our connections with, with one another. Yeah, some great books out there. Two very commendable uh, resolutions. Right, uh, now, usually at this point in the show, I would segue us straight into our first interview. But for this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, we're going to be doing something a bit different because... Uh, once we got all the interviews in for the show, we realised there was a bit of a recurring theme, which is definitions or perhaps the, the lack of clear definitions um, around particular areas of, of sustainability and, and climate action. 
So Matt, perhaps you could give us a very quick explainer of the interview you've got coming up, which triggered this thought for the podcast segment. Yep, so um, I'm speaking to um, a good friend of Edie, John Koo, who's head of sustainability at Interface. Um, and we were just talking about decarbonisation targets. You know, Interface have got a very kind of, uh, they're kind of in the vanguard of their targets. Um, you know, climate take backs a hugely ambitious um, strategy, kind of spearheaded by this this target to become carbon negative. And I was quite interested in, the, in why they decided to name it carbon negative, because in the comms aspect, negative is uh, well, it's a negative word. It doesn't kind of react well, but it, it also explains in, in layman's terms what it is they're trying to do. But then I see lots of other businesses with, you know, climate positive um, targets, carbon neutral targets, net zero targets. And um, we had a little chat about basically what, what it all means. It was a very kind of carbon jargon or jargon, as I accidentally put it in an email earlier, um, conversation, looking at whether this is, you know, whether it needs to be standardised, corporate sustainability targets, and, and kind of unified into one single kind of language, or whether or not that matters as long as businesses can showcase that they're delivering these ambitious targets. Mm. Yeah, and I must confess, I had a listen to that interview earlier. It got me thinking that we could probably all do with a bit of a, a refresher on, on net zero and the terminology around it. And, and by quick, I mean precisely two minutes. And who better to do that than our very own Sarah George, because in the last full episode of Sustainability Uncovered, I challenged you, Sarah, to tell us how to have yourself a sustainable little Christmas in two minutes, and you nailed that pretty much to the second. So this week, uh, I'd like to issue the time challenge once again. And this time, Sarah, I'd want you to give us your net zero jargon buster. So a run through of as many terms as possible related to net zero and decarbonisation. Now, listeners will be delighted to hear that there is, once again, some royalty-free music here. This one's titled Drums Music Royalty-Free Drums Background Music by Music 4 Video. And that's my, my ringtone. <laughs> that's yeah. my ringtone. Uh, and it's two minutes and 18 seconds, actually, precisely. So you've got a bit more time, Sarah, to, to bust some net zero jargon. Matt, I realise most of this will be foreign to you, clearly. So um, have I know, your my, I know my jargon. Thank you very much. Yeah, okay. Your, your jargon. jargon. My or? jargon, yeah. Um, so, Sarah, over to you in three, two, one. So starting off with net zero, this is a term that can be applied to all kinds of greenhouse gases but is most, most commonly used for carbon dioxide. It relates to netting the total amount of emissions by using a combination of reduction, removal and offsetting. The science-based targets net zero standard typically requires a 90% reduction before removals or offsetting are used. Carbon neutral is a term that is often used interchangeably with net zero but a lot of people believe that the difference lies in that net zero requires a certain level of reductions, whereas carbon neutral doesn't. You can just offset your way to carbon neutral today. Climate neutral is a term that's often used interchangeably with either carbon neutral or net zero. The EU uses it in a net zero way, but lots of brands use it in a carbon neutral way to mean that they've just carbon offset. But in my humble opinion, this term should really cover all greenhouse gas emissions, not just carbon, because they all have global warming potential. Coming on to, as Matt mentioned, carbon negative. This is a term that means going beyond netting your carbon to zero and instead supporting removals and or offsets for emissions levels greater than the levels generated. So if I'm generating 10 tonnes of CO2 and I offset 11, I'm technically carbon negative. Carbon positive, somewhat confusingly, commonly means the same as carbon negative, so go figure on that one. Um, coming on to carbon footprint, this relates to the amount of CO2 released into the atmosphere throughout the life cycle of a particular product or service, but you can also apply it to an organisation or an individual like my carbon footprint or that of a big business. 
Um, coming on to greenwashing, which we've mentioned, greenwashing is making claims about your environmental impact, carbon or otherwise, that will potentially deceive those who read or hear them into believing that your product, service or company is more eco-friendly than it really is. And staying on that theme, coming on to green hushing, which is keeping quiet about your environmental impact initiatives or targets, usually to try and avoid accusations of greenwashing. To the second spot on. Uh, so there you had it. Thank you very much for that, Sarah. I nailed it once again. I can see you were struggling to keep up there, but you can uh, listen back to this once it's all aired. Yeah, I've listened. I got, I got enraptured by the music, I think. It sounded very kind of uh, boss fight level. I was expecting a load of walks to be shouting grand or something. I, but, yeah. I know this man was inserting himself in an action movie or a video game. Yeah, I can that's, see it in his that's eyes. where my mind wanders most times in Paris. Right, um, that does tee us up nicely then, I think, to move on to this first interview. So Matt, remind us who again this chat was with. This is with Jungkoo, who is Head of Sustainability for Interface. Great, uh, let's get straight into it. So here's that chat uh, with Jungkoo in full. John, welcome. No stranger to the podcast, but it's great to have you back in early 2023. How are you? Always a, a pleasure, Matt, and excited about 2023. We'll try to keep positive in, in wintry conditions. Yeah, it's been a cold snap, well and truly hit. I'm, uh, I'm kind of triple layered in my uh, office from home right now to avoid just putting the heat on because of the uh, the costs. But um, thank you for taking time uh, to speak to us as part of our engagement week uh, and this special podcast episode for that week. Um, like I said, I just want to talk about the language around corporate um, sustainability targets and interface um, has always been a kind of a, a bit of a, an industry leader in terms of the, the ambitions of your climate uh, targets. Um, and we will be able to touch on, on that kind of broader target that you're working on but obviously a, a story that's come across recently and we've spoken to interface about this late last year was the fact that you are a carbon neutral enterprise which at the face value sounds very impressive uh, but as we were discussing before recording uh, there's a real kind of rise right now in in greenwash and whether that's more deliberate or more innocuous um, or, or kind of subtle or, or subconscious it, it's hard to tell so you're a carbon neutral enterprise um, and the question is, one, what does that mean? And, and how do you kind of back up the fact that you are indeed carbon neutral? Yeah, it's, um, I think this challenge for all companies is pretty much the same. Everyone's trying to find the credible path, I think. Or I think at least the majority are trying to find the credible path. There might be some that aren't. Um, but for us, you know, we're a flooring manufacturer. Um, and for us, being a carbon neutral enterprise is about taking a comprehensive approach um so it's around being a carbon neutral company that also makes carbon neutral products because we kind of felt that a lot of people really focus on the company or the operation side and maybe don't focus so much on their products or services for us we're trying to make sure we're being holistic in our our approach and that's why we chose to to work on being carbon neutral as as both um and a big thing for us was you know the measurement of our footprint, they're doing everything we can to, to reduce it, whether on the operations supply chain side or, or the product side. Um, and then for now to be carbon neutral by using verified carbon offsets for that, 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 that remainder. And a big thing for us is that carbon neutral, it's very much a stepping stone or a milestone. It's certainly not our destination, but it's where we think we should be as a responsible company today. And you mentioned um, data verified uh, approaches in terms of the voluntary uh, frameworks that you can use as, as well. How um, how important do you think that, that that kind of quality is is there? We we see a lot of 
uh, well, not a lot, but we see some companies kind of make broad, big claims or goals and then kind of not really explain the steps to do it. But it, it sounds like Interface have, have kind of done done the homework, so to speak, on the approaches to that. Um, do, do you think it's a it's a, a risk that businesses kind of get lost in a bit of a kind of wild west around these kind of these kind of claims, and that certification and standards they're the way to kind of act as a differentiator? I think very much so. I think in the past, I mean, we've seen a number of of, of, of claims that have been kind of spurious or, you know, debatable. Um, I think last year there's a couple of good examples of some companies really being called out for having advertising um, that was promising a lot more than it could ever actually deliver. For us to avoid that and also to be true to our roots, um, we always wanted any sustainability claim to be rooted in the the science. Um, so for us, if you're talking about carbon, you know, everything you do has to link towards the greenhouse gas protocol. If you're looking at products, you've got to be looking at your life cycle uh, assessment, um, which will then be positioned in environmental product declarations. If you're looking at your company, you've got to make sure you're covering all the different elements of scope one, two and three. Um, you know, that could be the energy you're using, but it's also going to include your, your transport, your your supply chain and further it was about being rooted in the science about and being comprehensive and i think for any company that's that's a, the best approach to take and if you're not taking that approach then you have to ask yourself if you're running the risk of making claims that you can't substantiate and and for those companies that perhaps you know they, they've made those targets and perhaps they, they're not there on the on the the qualitative piece around data and whatnot we, we we've heard this kind of term rising in prominence recently around green hushing um there was a recent planet tracker report that went into it about businesses going a bit quiet on their claims uh, maybe they don't have all their kind of uh, ducks in a row so to speak um uh, or the, the initiatives aren't quite ready and they're, they're kind of not talking about sustainability to avoid being scrutiny but if you know for if there's a kind of sustainability practitioner watching this for a kind of small company that they've got big ambitions but perhaps um that's the destination but the journey hasn't started how how do you articulate that that that's where you want to be but you're you're not ready to get there yet it's really interesting on the green hushing side because i I only came, came across the term in 2022 actually um and it made me think i i could think of a number of companies large and small that were doing some great things on sustainability or taking a, a a net zero strategy or approach but they weren't talking about it because they were worried they were going to get under too much scrutiny but i think when you step into the arena of making any climate-based pledge or pledge around net zero you you have to be willing to have that dialogue and you have to be willing to be challenged and maybe that's easier for me to say as interface because you know we've been out there talking about it Facing on transparency, we have a, a comfort level from experience, and if and maybe others do not, but I, I think it's really important that people are willing to just be very transparent about what they're doing, and also able to have a dialogue, whether in the public with social media, or at least with their key stakeholders, their investors, their employees, um, to to answer the challenges and answer the questions, because ultimately. If you try and do this in a silo, you know, you're not answering that question. You're not you're not making a clear answer to people. So people are going to wonder, well, is there really foundations and and and, and truth behind your claim? Now, that's a, a great point there. And I want to speaking of kind of future targets, 
Interface has got a really ambitious one. This is kind of big carbon negative goal that you're, you're really striving towards. And uh, I'm interested in, in how you perhaps settled on, on that as a goal. I know we, we've spoken many times about the, 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 the purpose behind it, but from a comms point of view, a carbon negative goal is quite different. You know, I know it's beyond net zero. It's beyond carbon neutral what you are now, but from a, from a, just a language term, negative is well, it's a negative word. It's quite a strange one to have in a corporate target. Have you have you had to explain that to someone that actually carbon negative is 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 actually a really positive? Uh, there you go. There's the wordplay right there. Uh, is actually a really positive target. How how did you decide not to go down the 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 kind of planet positive or climate positive route and, and kind of go carbon negative as your goal? For us, it was a a curious one because we, because it's, it can sound confusing, but we were trying to navigate it in a way that would make sense for our market and our stakeholders so in terms of when you think about a flooring product we've always thought about how many emissions it made um and then being carbon neutral as a way of kind of getting to zero um whilst using a little of some offsets and then what was interesting in our science-based targets discussion we had to look at like in our product category getting to absolute zero um and so we then were thinking, well, we, we'd like that phraseology around carbon negative as going as a clear way of showing that you need to go beyond zero. Um, and it's good if you, you know, when you demonstrate it in the, in a graph, because we do, you know, we were very much inspired by the Stockholm Resilience Institute and the work of Johan Rockström. And, um, he has these great graphs where he kind of sets out in order to get to net zero, this is what you need to do in reduction, but this is below the line what you need to be able to do in terms of carbon removals or um, impacts that have a carbon negative, uh, will need a carbon negative approach. And that's that was kind of our approach. Now, I would say I'm not going to say that was the right or wrong approach and we'll let the market, we'll let others decide if they follow it. It was just the right one for us because of how we'd come to it in relation to our operations and products. No, that's that's fair enough. And like I said, you know, there's um, there's multiple different targets, that all mean different things and, and different levels of ambition. And um, we were talking, obviously, the UK um, has, has had that net big net zero review uh, published, and a lot of the talk is about standards and the need for much kind of uh, unified and simplicity to help you know UK PLC move ahead. Do, do you think that we could? benefit from more kind of stringent or even unified terminology around corporate climate goals because like I said there's there's a real kind of plethora of, of different terminologies and, and some sound really kind of sparkly from a, from a PR point of view some do kind of set out in layman's terms what, what's happening but from a from a consumer or, or a stakeholder that's coming from perhaps a kind of lower level of, of knowledge around this you know how 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 are they going to do, do we need to kind of come up with a unified terminology around this? I think we do need to. It's just going to be a lot of work to get there. Um, I mean, we're not a signature this, to this, but like the Science-Based Targets Initiative um, Net Zero Standard is a good attempt at making a, a solid accepted definition around Net Zero. And then there's another UN international working group working on it as well. And I think as long as they're sharing lessons and then, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of having that discussion as sustainability professionals, as CEOs, as, you know, it's good, but it will be governments that need to to kind of adopt um, and promote the use of certain terms. I mean, I, I do think they could play a very helpful role in unifying the different definitions and cutting through. And also with a, with a government, you know, they're, 
they rely on us and others as experts. Um, so they are, in theory, quite a good independent um, body to look at and say, well, what's the right term we should use? And so, you know, with the Skidmore review on net zero, if that can help kind of push and advise our government in the UK to to kind of really ask what's the right term or what should we be using? And it stokes the debate around that and it helps us find more common ground. I don't think it overnight will get to the right one, but if it helps us find more common ground, then I think that'll be a good thing. And I want to switch this away from, from just kind of emissions decarbonisation to, to the broader, I suppose, CSR, but now it's kind of evolving into ESG, which is more investor speak again, another kind of language transformation. It seems like sustainability professionals every year or every few months or so have a, have a different kind of term or buzzwords. I mean, we've spoken about greenwashing, green hushing, net zero, carbon negative, CSR, ESG. There's there's loads of um, other aspects across the sustainability spectrum as well. When when kind of a, a trend or, or a buzzword does kind of crop up and, and you're, whether you're kind of in your kind of um, circles where you, you're talking to other sustainability professionals who are clued up on the jargon or you're relating to stakeholders perhaps saying it must be a evolving effort to to really translate what's happening both in terms of the terminology and indeed in terms of the science that we see from like the IPCC reports and whatnot into actionable steps how you know what advice did you have for a sustainable profession that that probably feels like they are drowning in in jargon at some points I think the comedy fact Matt is we listened back over the last couple of minutes of the interview and wrote down all the different acronyms and that we've just used. <laughs> yeah. thinking, this, is, this can be a confusing world, especially if you're coming into a new. I think most industries and movements have a jargon problem, and that itself is a bit of a double-edged sword. I think people get into jargon because they're trying to understand and communicate something. Where it gets complex is sometimes people want to put their own stamp on it, or they want to argue the minutiae of a, a kind of slightly different inflection on it. And you need to go through this phase with any term in order to get more clarity and also to stoke the debate and the healthy dialogue and critique where someone goes, well, what does carbon neutral mean? And what does net zero mean? You know, do we really understand the difference between recycled and recyclable? Um, and I, I think for sustainability professionals that are coming into a new or, or those that have been around longer, I think we have to realise that part of our job is to really demystify that. Now, whether that's by being the person that goes, why are we using this term? Or is this the most effective term? Or if it's being able to explain to boards or the public or different stakeholders, you know, what does this really mean? That is a really important skill set that I think our industry needs to, to use. Now, to be slightly controversial... I think the world of sustainability comms and sustainability marketing itself can either help this or hinder this. And one of the challenges that we have as sustainability professionals is to make sure that we are the voice that goes, this should always be helping this. Um, we shouldn't be trying to make things more complex than it is, mainly because you know we've got a short amount of time to turn things around. Arguing over a certain definition or coming up with a new acronym isn't necessarily going to you know, help. Unless it's moving the discussion forward, we should be trying to keep things as simple to understand so we can then move on to having the, the change and the impact that we want. Well, I'm certainly hoping this discussion today has, has helped uh, simplify um, the, the the issue for, for some of our listeners today. John, it's been a, 
a pleasure um, speaking to you. Like you said, we are on a, a short time frame to be able to kind of change the world. So speaking to journalists like me probably eats into that time you have to, to act as a change maker. So I won't keep you any longer, but it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's always an absolute pleasure. I'm also aware that I'm now going to be assessed about how many acronyms I use and if I don't explain it off clearly, but I'm happy for that to be the dialogue. Yes, thank you very much to John there, a long-time supporter and a good friend of Edie's, as we just heard, uh, and a really inspirational sustainability leader as well. Right, uh, now we have a lot of ground covered uh, in the last half an hour, but there's plenty more ground still to cover in this episode. So I think it's a good time for us to take a break, uh, and Matt, this gives you some time uh, to go over those net zero terms once again, let them sink in. For the rest of us, please don't go anywhere because when we return, we'll be chatting meat-free futures with the Alliance for Plant-Based Foods, and we take a visit to a pop-up hub in London which showcases regenerative and circular fashion. See you in a sec. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. Uh, I'm joined here still in the studio by Edie's very own uh, Thelma and Louise, that is Matt Mason and Sarah George. Uh, while we're on films and TV, actually, what, what are you watching at the moment, Matt? Um, I started watching uh, Alice in Borderland, okay. um, which is kind of like Squid Games. Esque. Um, I think it's. I think it's Japanese dubbed. It's basically like what would happen if Tokyo people vanished in Tokyo and it turned into like this big games arena. But the games are quite, um, quite graphically morbid in that sense. But it's it's kind of in in captivating. You're trying to figure out who who knows what about what. Um, Very very enjoying it. Mm. Thanks, Sarah. Any recommendations? Um, Recommendations. We watched all of Stonehouse in one night. It's a three part TV drama about an MP. MP Stonehouse, um, who went missing deliberately um, in the 70s. He got into some financial trouble hmm. and decided to make himself go missing. Chaos and shoes. Hmm. Wow. I just finished watching uh, Traitors. Oh, yeah, I've oh. heard about that. Yeah, I knew uh, that would be one for you because you're like the resident Love Island guru. <laughs> <aren't you? laughs> Come on. I'm surprised that wasn't Grant's actually. That, yes, I've been watching the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, reality game show uh, at a castle. I think it's like a group of 15 people or so. Three of them are sort of traitors, but the rest of them don't know that. And those three traitors go about killing the others. I've not done a great job of explaining it, but... It's the fans of Cluedo and Among Us. Yeah, it's a very Cluedo. <laughs> anyway, um, aside from watching TV this month, you'll be pleased to hear that I have been doing some work as well, because with this month marking Veganuary, uh, I thought it would be a good time for the Sustainability Uncovered podcast to uncover the world of plant-based diets in a business context. Uh, As we all know, the meat-free movement is really gathering pace, particularly over the past 18 months, with a number of companies changing up their their business models and releasing new product lines, which are plant-based and therefore much more sustainable environmentally. So what does the future look like for the plant-based movement in the UK, and and what will it take to really mainstream the concept and embed it even further in business? Those are the questions I took to my virtual interview with the Plant-Based Food Alliance UK, uh, which was set up in late 2021, uh, initially by Danone's uh, Upfield brand, um, as a coalition of organisations from across the UK's plant-based value chain, 
including NGOs, manufacturers, farmers even, and the Alliance essentially looks at how we can advocate for policy to improve plant-based growth. Marissa Heath is the Alliance's chief executive, and I started by asking her what the Alliance's mission was. A level playing field, basically. We want to be considered by government when they're forming policy. So the meat and dairy, the animal-based sector is involved in those conversations. It has a voice at the table and we're saying plant-based as the future needs to also have a seat at the table and be having the conversations with government about what the future landscape looks like for food production. It's interesting in terms of, I guess, the, the future trajectory. I guess looking back at the past trajectory, there has, um, as well as a kind of disengaged element from, from government, from businesses perhaps, there's been a bit of a stigma perhaps around the vegan or plant-based movement, which does seem to be changing, especially as the public becomes more aware of the environmental benefits that a, a plant-based diet and economy could bring. Could you just sort of talk up to us a little bit about that? Just how significant an impact can plant-based diets have on the environmental sustainability of our planet and perhaps also the economy? Well, I mean, Oxford University did a very thorough study and they found out that dietary emissions for meat eaters are about 50 to 54% higher than they are for vegetarians and up to 102% higher than they are for vegans. So it's quite fair to say that on average, animal-based products have a much higher environmental or climate impact than plant-based products, that's across the board. Now, obviously, there's variations within different products, and that's why one of our pools is for eco-labeling on products so people can be really sure about what they're buying. But, you know, one of the biggest um, entities, the UN, the United Nations, has got an intergovernmental panel, panel on climate change, which is all of the serious brains and science um, scientists, and they describe plant-based diets as a major opportunity for mitigating and adapting to climate change. So they've all recommended meat consumption is reduced, and our own um, Climate Change Commission in the UK has also said the same thing. So we have to really get serious about this. Um, you know, just as one um, statistic that I think is really interesting, to produce one steak takes 50 bathtubs of water. I mean, that's from the World Economic Forum um, on data use, on water usage, sorry. So that is huge. And we're not just talking about carbon here. We're talking about land use, which is connected to biodiversity and all of the wildlife. 86% of um, living beings are either farm animals or humans. The rest is left to you know, the wildlife out there, which is tiny. That's such a small percentage left of animals that would live on this land that's being used for farming. And then you've got the pollution factors. Um, people have read all about the stuff, um, pollution of waterways and things like that. It, it goes on and on. So it does have quite a big impact, the food we eat. And plant-based has been set out by some major institutions as being a way of tackling that environmental impact. Yeah, it's an incredible impact. Um, I, I wanted to talk then about the growth that we're seeing in the plant-based food market but I suppose there's a second question there about whether that growth is being seen in tandem with a decline in the meat consumption and the meat side of the market so it's a sort of two-part question are we seeing the kind of the growth that we're wanting that we're hoping for in the plant-based food market and are we seeing any level of um, declination in regards to, to sort of the meat market? Yeah, it's a really good question. Now, first of all, internationally, meat consumption isn't going down because other countries as they're developing are upping their meat consumption. So we still have a major problem here. In the UK, it has gone down, not massive amounts, but it has gone down. Um, so we're on the right pathway. Plant-based food is still very 
early it's in its early stages i believe the massive growth is actually still to come it might have slowed down in the kind of um, um speed that it grows because it's kind of pick, being picked up by the vegetarians and the vegans but it's now moving into the flexitarian market where more people are saying actually I'm going to reduce meat because for my health as well as the environment so um, there is still huge growth to, to come I think that really the messaging has got to be more consistent out there around the environmental impact and that's where government becomes so important and why we set up the alliance which is government facing because we need the government to come forward and set um, proper targets on this. Now the reports they've had, they had the food strategy written by Henry Dimbleby, um, as I said their own climate change commission advising them and the UN um, advising on reducing meat but the government have produced a white paper setting out the future of food and not once have they mentioned any reduction targets targets or spoken really about plant-based or alternative proteins that much at all so that's something that's really missing and I think until governments get hold of this we're not going to see the drop in meat and dairy consumption that we need in order to meet those um, sustainability and environmental objectives. That's really interesting yeah we, um, we've got it's a bit of a shameless plug we've got Henry Dimbleby speaking at our ED23 event in, in March and he's going to be touching on this but um, I suppose there is a follow-up question based on what you just said then there which is what, from a policy perspective, what are the key two or three things that you want to see at a policy level that would really act as catalysts? So we want the government's foremost to recognise but the environmental um, benefits of shifting to more plant-based diets. We recognise people aren't just going to stop eating meat and animal products overnight, but they need to recognise that this is a major part in reaching those objectives. We also want them to recognise the economic and growth opportunities in this. Now, the UK is one of the world leaders in plant-based because we've got some excellent businesses and we've got consumers who are really open to the products, but the government isn't creating the right um, environment for them to really flourish and go forward and a lot of them are now manufacturing outside of the UK even though they're British brands so we need the government to address that as I mentioned we need them to set a target what does meat and dairy reduction look like what is the number around that because once you know the number you've got a target and you can then come up with a strategy as to how you're going to fill that whether it's fermented foods plant-based cultivated meat um, higher higher welfare um, um, animal products where you know lots of companies are looking at how they improve that space as well you have to really be very clear on what you're trying to achieve so we'd like that we'd also like the government to address things like eco-labeling because the consumer is at the front end of this the consumer makes the real difference here the consumer has already driven the plant-based sector very very far particularly in the UK by demand for its products and by being open-minded to it to its innovation and I think we need to give consumers the, the information through equal, through transparent labelling so they understand what they're buying and the difference. And um, through public procurement. So the government spends around 2.3 billion on food in the public sector. So prisons, schools, council buildings within the government buildings as well. A percentage of that should be focused on plant based food in our mind, because the government has serious environmental agendas. All of the local authorities and things have got net zero goals. And they're ignoring the elephant in the room around food at the moment. We're talking about transport um, and you know, green energy and things, which are very important. But food is equally important and it's not being up there. I mean, the UN, again, has said that livestock emit more greenhouse gases than all global transportation. Why aren't we talking about it more? Well, I wonder if there's an element of it being such a behavioural shift that it would involve, you know, every person ultimately and what they eat. We do it all the time when we talk about high in sugar, fat, salt, all of those sorts of things. And we know the government has this obesity strategy, which constantly gets sort of moved down 
because it doesn't seem to be um, working. And there is very strong evidence of all the health benefits. A plant based diet is absolutely beneficial for tackling obesity um, and weight problems, which are then linked to all those bigger health problems, diabetes, heart failure, all of the things. We've got an NHS that's on its knees at the moment. We have to get to the preventative agenda. So why aren't we having these conversations there as well? It's it's environmental and it is health too. Um, uh, now, you mentioned that this is kind of a very, you know, the consumers at the front end of this uh, debate and eco-labelling is a key aspect of it, therefore. Um, a, a running theme of this particular episode of, of Sustainability Uncovered is, is on definitions. Um, as you know, this industry is, is rife with jargon and phrases which are difficult for people working in sustainability and, and climate change to understand, let alone the, the wider public. So I did want to ask you about the terminology being used around veganism plant-based um movements at the moment um there's plant-based there's meat-free vegan flexitarian as you mentioned and various other kind of terminology i guess there's a part of a sort of does it matter question there but really is obviously the alliance is termed plant-based rather than vegetarian or vegan is is that the industry term that we, we should all be working towards is it clearer to policymakers and to consumers if we if we had one I think we have to pick a, um, a term. I mean, we speak to companies like Quorn that are obviously focused on mushrooms. And then there's a question, mushrooms aren't actually plants. But at the end of the day, plant-based um, just gives us a sort of term to use. Veganism gets people quite hot, hot on the, under the collar. And veganism is a way of life. It's um, choosing not to wear leather shoes, for example, choose, you know, how you live completely. Um, plant-based is more focused on food, on diet. So we feel it's a better phrase to use when we're government facing because we're trying to change systems but we're pragmatic about it we know that the solutions will be a multitude of different factors that come in plant-based being one of them a, a very big one but one of them so we just want to be very pragmatic and sensitive about how we're having these conversations we're not here to force consumers to do anything we're just here to say look the writing is on the wall and we have a solution and it's for all of our benefits because we all want a planet to live on in the future don't we and we all want wildlife and we want biodiversity and we want water all of these really important things so um, plant-based seems to us the best way of explaining to people now um, when you pick up a product that's plant-based in a in a supermarket the point is it's just sort of saying it has no animal products in it but some of them may have been made by a big brand that is using a facility that's also making animal products. I mean, we know big companies like Danone, like Nestle, like Unilever, and then even the restaurants Burger King and McDonald's are now doing plant-based options. They're produced in the same kitchen where they're making the animal-based products. Mm. Yeah, and that, that sort of leads on to my, to my final question here, really, because um, I wanted to get your views on all of this from a, a business or an industry perspective. Um, there'll be a lot of people listening to this podcast who work for organisations whose entire business model is, is predicated on, on consuming animal products from, from restaurants, as you say, to farms, beef manufacturers, etc. Um, how, how, if at all, um, do you see those business models changing over time? Should it be a case of them simply adding new plant-based product lines alongside their traditional offerings or, or should we be looking at this as more of a, a complete conversion that's needed? So I think we're already seeing the companies shifting anyway. So, you know, you've got companies like Compass Group, which are a major food supplier. I think they've set their targets either 30 or 50 percent towards plant based. We've all heard the news around Burger King wanting to shift to 50 percent plant based. We are seeing change happening from these brands because they recognise the importance of taking risk out of their chain. 
um, and also having that diversification, which allows them to move into the plant based space and provide those foods, which I think will be the things we want to consume in the future. So I think for any company, and that's why we have to be open minded and wanting to work with everyone, that there's real opportunities here. And the opportunities are also provided by the fact that, as I said, we're at the early stage of our journey, but taste, texture, flavour, all of those sorts of things is advancing rapidly. There's a lot more products coming online that can really replace meat products and do it very well. So this offers huge opportunities for companies to be able to bring in really good products. What they don't want to do is bring things in that people go, yuck, that was horrible. I'm never going back to that company to eat anything again. So the fact we're seeing so much innovation and the statistic that is a, it's a, it's a funny statistic that I always mention because it's one that I just think should really excite us is there's 300,000 edible plants okay, in the world. And we generally use about 200 of them, but actually mainly use around sort of 20 to 30 just think of all of those hundreds of thousands of plants that can potentially be something that will create innovation that can become foods of the future i think that's so exciting this is a space where things are happening and where we can do it in an environmental and sustainable way mm. to me it's hugely exciting we're all worried about the climate but there's all this potential on the horizon and with that comes economic growth and new businesses and new employment I completely agree. I mean, from a personal perspective, having gone on my own journey towards veganism in the last 12 months, I would say there's that point you made about the levels of innovation that are already out there and the kind of excitement as to the things that are coming um, on the horizon, I think is a so it's a nice side of the discussion to be on. And it's also been great. It's been fascinating. It's opened myself up to loads of kind of new flavours, tastes um, that I didn't know were, were out there um, before I sort of made the, the transition myself. Anyway, before this becomes a monologue, Marissa, um, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating and insightful chat. To say, personally, really inspired and, and grateful for the work you're doing there at the, at the Alliance. And hopefully by listening to this chat, a few of our listeners will, will be inspired to get involved in increasing the role of plant-based diets in, in our society too. So um, thank you very much for your time. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Luke. There we go. Thank you again to Marissa and the Plant-Based Food Alliance UK. Really interesting to see how that alliance grows and, and the impact it can have over the next couple of years. Uh, right, now that's two out of the three interviews. Uh, Matt's delved into decarbonisation. I've veered into veganism. Sarah, where are you taking us next? I can't do alliteration. <laughs> I'm taking you into the world of regenerative fashion, um, another term like net zero or carbon neutral that is taking off probably a couple of years behind um, but different people use it to mean different things sometimes we um, use it for food that's being farmed more than fashion um, so I went along to the Royal College of Arts pop-up regenerative fashion hub um, in London late last year to find out a little bit about what exactly that means what it looks like and how we can get people and the industry on board to transform and I spoke with Professor Sharon Borley who works at the Royal College of Art usually um, but she was there at the hub in Stratford to help oversee proceedings pop up. Great. Let's play that chat between Sarah and Professor Sharon Borley in full. Yes, it's great to be out and about um, for this next part of the podcast, as I'm sure the team will have already told you. Um, I'm in Stratford today at the Pop-Up Regenerative Fashion Hub um, here, kindly being hosted by the RCA um, and here from the RCA to talk me through a little bit about what that means and to help bring it to life for you guys listening um, at home. I have the director of their Materials Science Research Centre, Professor Sharon Borley. So thank you so much for your time, Sharon. How are you? I'm very good this morning. Thank you. No, thank you for, for having me. Um, I'm sure we'll have talked about this a little bit before, but we've got a great pop-up space here talking people 
through what regenerative fashion could look like in terms of taking biomaterials that might otherwise end up as, as waste um, and turning them into clothing. But I know that regenerative is like a big buzzword at the moment and different people use it to mean different um, things. So it would be great to start with maybe an introduction to yourself and, and this hub. Yes, yeah, so the Textile Circularity Centre is uh, funded by UK Research and Innovation and it's one of five centres that's been funded under this funding programme. And the Textile Circularity Centre is undertaking fundamental research into circular textiles economy for the UK SME fashion apparel industry based on producing high-value textiles from bio-waste. Um, and the Regenerative uh, Fashion Hub, which is a pilot uh, hub, it's a six-week residency at the Lab E20 here in Stratford to put, the, put, to put our research on the high street to engage public uh, industry NGOs uh, in, in participation and discussion about uh, what we're doing but also the issues that surround it. Great and it's been great to be here and I guess a, a question is what exactly regenerative means or what part of regeneration is being focused on here at the hub because we've seen maybe things like regenerative cotton farming, is it the same as upcycling, is it just to do with bio waste, so how ex what exact part of regeneration are you guys focusing on with this? We, we see regeneration as, as, as um, it's a number of things but for us it's restorative um, and one of the key uh, elements of our research is to add value to the bio waste at each process in our system design. So research into the circular economy requires a systems approach so we have three research strands so we can take an integrated approach and address um, materials, supply chain and consumer experience collectively. And so um, in, in, the, uh, in the Regenerative Fashion Hub, we have designed a journey of this bio-waste from the source of waste through to recycling that waste into polymers for fibres or into polymers that can be um, deposited in, onto flexible materials for finishes, mm -hmm. so textile production, and then through into the point of consumption. So through our system design um, that you can see here, we're adding value to the waste as it flows through our system design. Um, and we see that as restorative. Restorative in terms of we're, we're, di we're diverting waste from going into incineration and landfill. Um, we are adding value uh, for, for textiles in terms of uh, the fabrication techniques. So we are really focused on flexible manufacturing such as th uh, 3D weaving and ro robotics, aided by robotics added manufacturing that could enable which is more which enables more flexible manufacturing and particularly for more localized manufacturing for brands for for fashion brands the smaller brands so that they can they can create their own unique um, materials identity through these techniques so you'll have seen here that lots of uh, kind of finishes uh, that, that are uh, that are possible through our fabrication techniques so there's kind of like an economic uh, re uh, restoration uh, mm -hmm, element mm -hmm. to it, uh, and a social and a, uh, and a social restoration element to it, and then there's the human element. So, uh, consumer consumer experience um, is a third of our research, and uh, that group uh, is very focused on understanding dimensions of human well-being and satisfaction, and how we can take that understanding and use it as a design strategy to design experiences and services around the product so that we can decouple um, human satisfaction from the consumption of material resources so we can divert that into to more materials ex experiences around the materials 
um, and also related to kind of co-design, configuration of apparel, understanding materials and their provenance and their properties, uh, repair and re refurbishment. So there is a, also a hum uh, you know kind of a restorative element for humans. So I think that it's it's all it's kind of environmental, economic, social, and human. Mm -hmm. That's so much broader than I maybe expected when I came and it's great to see all of that and it's really clear to see that public piece so there's an exhibit there um, called I think like the materials gym yes where you can feel materials you can design your own shirt you can think about modular design um, and repair and seeing as as you said a lot of this project is about engaging the public with this so what what have you learned about how people respond to regenerative fashion um, from from this pop-up there's been a huge amount of interest and I think that when people are engaging with for example our configurable shirt they it's a very it's a very enjoyable experience and it's a it's a, it because it's very playful and people are learning new things so we're getting very positive feedback from from people who come here to not only to experience the journey but also to engage in our studies in our research studies so it's, it's something that's that's kind of very rewarding and engaging that's the kind of feedback we're getting Mm. But I've I've also seen that as well that it's it's obviously not the dominant method of consumption at the at the moment. Um, more is wasted than is is reused. So what needs to change in terms of what people understand and how they behave to make that um, mainstream? Is it people that aren't being taught repair anymore? Is there a sort of ick about waste materials? I I think what we've tried to do in in this hub is to offer a, an alternative to the current model which is conspicuous consumption by by offering by uh, presenting and bringing to life an alternative model that's based around experiencing the materials experiencing the garment so it's it's playful it's educative educative it's um and engaging and uh it's an it's it's a model that's based on being able to um change your components mm -hmm. so you can come back to the brand and upgrade and update your garment you can exchange components uh, so the idea is that uh, a circular economy is about keeping materials and products in use for as long as possible it's not a circular economy is not a recycling economy recycling as economy is different and this is about circulating these products and then the component parts in our configurable shirt circulating those so it's I think it's about giving consumers the industry needs to give consumers an alternative model to the one that we have because for consumers they don't see an, op an, an alternative um, y yes you can y there are more sustainable materials they are more expensive but given that we're in a cost of living crisis if consumers feel that that's the only option then it's 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 a it's one that's constraining so I think that the whole kind of resale and second-hand or multiple uh, use, uh, users of apparel products needs to become a part of our culture. Mm. I was talking to one of your colleagues who said people are even questioning like is the word consumer even productive because that sort of tells people like oh the option isn't to buy isn't to repair something sorry it's to yes. just go and buy and no, I think I think the consumer the con the word consumer is a, is a problem, but and that's the other the other cultural element is that we we see we think that consumers need to be renamed as repairers, refurbishers, and designers, um, and upgraders. Uh, yeah, mm. and all of that is stuff that you can do in when you're strapped for cash.
Yes, absolutely. Well. And I think that there is a re- there is that the re- the repair culture is is starting to. I mean, we're seeing repair uh, uh, programs on the t- television. There are community, you know, in in boroughs, certainly in in, in Wandsworth where we're resident as as, a, as the RCA. There's an emergence of uh, a, a repair culture. I think. Mm, of course. And then I wanted to talk about, we've, we have a lot of people listening to this who work in sustainability and businesses at SMEs, like you mentioned, but sometimes at um, bigger businesses and they might think, well, why are we working with the RCA? Why the RCA? Um, so it'd be great to hear your thoughts on how better people that are working in arts and materials can collaborate with people that are working in sustainability in, in business. Well, um, that is the... the, the, the one of the many purposes of this um, circular economy program that's funded by UK Research and Innovation is it's interdisciplinary and and multi-stakeholder. That's how the program has been designed, so that universities are working um, with different stakeholders, different constituent uh, members of a, of a supply chain, for example, and um, and also different parts of the community. So consumers. Uh, people who who are involved in waste management, we uh, we have lots very close links with Wandsworth Council, and we've been um, working with some of their groups around uh, reducing consumption-based emissions on uh, based on textiles, and that's also part of a, a bigger London Council's mm-hmm. initiative, um, the London Climate Goals uh, initiative. So we, we that's very uh, kind of citizen fa- uh, facing. Well, that's great to hear because obviously that we've heard before that the circular economy is just that it is an economy which requires lots of different actors. It can't just be an add-on um, at any one part. So great to see that so many different kinds of people have been um, coming along. Um, I know we're nearly at the end of our time to record, so I guess as we're recording this very close to the end of the year, I think we're all in a little bit of a reflective mood (laughs) and looking to look ahead. Um, You've talked there about some of the culture shifts that are going on at the moment around repair, but I guess I'd like to um, close out by looking at what you think is going to happen in the world of sustainable and regenerative fashion this year. Yeah, I am hopeful because there there is a lot of development uh, in regenerative and sustainable and circular materials and I think with those developments maybe some of the unfortunate the unfortunate for example the um, the cost of living crisis I mean it's very unfortunate and no one wants it but it but it but it does it does force culture change Mm -hmm. and these these all these kind of um, developments uh, in terms of you know social developments, economic developments, and then the technical developments can collide to to um, to reach to, or to, to change culture mm-hmm. uh, in in a way that's that's beneficial for everyone. So because we do need to consume less, there is no there's no two there are no two ways about it if if we're to to meet the one and a half degrees of, of, of global warming by 2030 we have to consume a lot less mm-hmm. and use a lot less material resources we need to see culture change no that makes sense and it's good to see that the seeds for that have already been sown as you mentioned there's already a growing movement of repair cafes repair groups repair tv shows and some great research and development like what i've seen here today so sharon thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for inviting me
Thanks to Professor Sharon Borley and, and the Textile Circularity Centre at the Royal College of Art for hosting us. Right, now, I think that is now a wrap. The hardcore listeners, or the, the ED lights, as I think we called them at some point in one of the episodes previously, will notice we're not closing off with our usual quiz. Some of you might suggest that's because Matt embarrassed me last time around with his crazy knowledge of, of COP27. Um, I'm sticking with the line that we simply run out of time. The hour's well and truly up. So before we go, though, Sarah, do you want to tease us uh, with what's coming up in the next episode of the pod? Um, so our next episode's going to be live um, near the end of February, and it will be teeing us up for our business leadership theme. Um, we're having this as our theme for the entirety of the month of March. We're starting the month of Strong with ED23 on March 1st and 2nd. Um, in London and then keeping the focus going with some great online content throughout the month until our awards ceremony, including the podcast. Um, so expect some big names, some experts in defining what sustainable business leadership means, as we say in this age of polycrisis. Mm. Um, so I can't give too much away about who these experts will be. I think it might ruin the, the preview at, at this stage, but expect to hear from our partners at Lloyds Bank, um, as well as some of our great speakers from ED23. Mm. Watch this space. Yeah, lots to say. Tune for. I uh, must say a huge thanks to all of our podcast guests who featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, and a special thanks to our podcast partner, Lloyds Bank. Uh, until next time, it's uh, goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.